It was when Ali was still pretty little, like still carrying around in your arms, needing to sit in the cart, kind of little. And at the time, I was working out at a neighborhood gym, and in order to help with the kids in the morning, I'd go really early in the morning. So there'd be me and a couple of other people that were there, not many people, but among the people that were there was this woman, and I didn't like her. I didn't like the way that she worked out. I didn't like what she wore. I didn't like her water bottle. I didn't like the way she walked around. I just didn't like her. And I didn't like her for weeks and months and months, and I, I just didn't like her. And then one day, I went to Costco with Allie. And I've got, you know, my wallet, and I've got Allie, and I'm trying to pull out one of the carts. And the cart is stuck, and I can't get it out. And all of a sudden, I hear this very kind voice say, let me grab that for you. And this hand pulls it out, and I turn to put Allie in, and this voice says, we've all been there. And I look up, and it's the woman I don't like. And I'm like, no, I don't like you. Don't do something nice for me because you're not within the sphere of people that I care about. Kind of rocked my world. And that feeling of having people that you care about and people that you don't care about is really at the heart of the story that we're going to look at today. Um, and we're going to tell a very familiar story for many of you. It's the Good Samaritan. Uh, for some of you, it's going to be almost second nature. Others of you don't know the story. And if you're not familiar with the story, you're in for a treat because it really is a great story. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25 and following. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So we have an expert in the law, a lawyer perhaps, but even if he was just a, uh, a governmental lawyer, he still would have been pretty well versed in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Why does he ask Jesus this question? Well, he might have been really interested and wanted to know what Jesus thought. 
There are a couple of other places, like in John 3 with Nicodemus, where people in leadership positions are really interested in Jesus, and maybe it was that. Or he might be testing Jesus to see if Jesus' views were orthodox or trying to see if he could get Jesus to make a mistake. So one of those reasons is why he asks the question. But he asks a really interesting question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, we might say, how can I be saved? Or how can I know God? And in the context of Second Temple Judaism, which is this period, the belief was that God's people, collectively the Jews, would receive eternal life. So the question that the lawyer is asking is really, what do I do to belong to God's people? What do I need to do or be in order to belong to God's people? What do I need to change? How do I need to act? What condition does my heart need to be in? How do I become part of the people of God? And hold on to that because we'll come back to it. The lawyer asks the question and Jesus tosses it back to him. You're a lawyer. What does the law say? Now, this is not necessarily snarky. It might be, but it's also a fairly typical teaching technique. You ask a question and the teacher asks back, what do you think? You tell me. And so the lawyer answers his own question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, he's not breaking any new ground here. That's pretty much the standard answer. Uh, by the time we come to this point in history, the rabbis have put Deuteronomy 6, which is the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. They've put that together with Leviticus 19, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is also what Jesus says when someone comes to him and says, what's the greatest commandment? This is what Jesus answers back. So this is pretty typical. Everybody knew this is the right answer. So the lawyer answers and Jesus goes, right, go and do that and you'll have eternal life. Now, that's a little stunning if you think about it, especially for those of us, salvation is by grace through faith and not by works of righteousness, people. It's kind of like believe and do but it's not really contradictory to salvation by grace through faith. What it means is, if you say you believe, but it doesn't really affect how you live or how you love, you probably don't really know God. The people of God act in a certain way. The people of God reflect the kingdom of God because we respond to people with compassion, mercy, justice, and love. But, it says, he wanted to justify himself. It's kind of like, okay, round one goes to Jesus, but there's more to be discussed here. And so he has a follow-up question, but who is my neighbor? And in the Leviticus passage, which I mentioned, which he would have known, your neighbor is pretty much your fellow Israelite. Your neighbor is people like you. Your neighbor is people who belong to your group. And then a couple of verses later in Leviticus, it's expanded to include foreigners who live in the land. Those are who God's people are. Other people are excluded. 
notably Samaritans, which will come up in the story, and foreign people in general. So the lawyer's question is basically who belongs to the category of God's people. And remember, his, his question is, how do I belong to God's people so that I can have eternal life? And now he's wanting to know who else is in this category. And there's two points of emphasis for him there. One is, if they aren't God's people, I don't have to care about them. And the other, asking who is God's people, is it gives him a closed set. I only have to care about these people. And then I can check it off my list. Cared for my neighbor. Check. I've accomplished what I need to accomplish. This time, instead of asking a question back, Jesus tells a story. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem's at 2,000 feet above the sea level. Jericho is at 900 feet below. So one always goes up to Jerusalem and down to Jericho. So he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on this kind of dangerous country road, he gets attacked, robbed, they steal his clothes, they beat him, and they leave him half dead by the side of the road. That's how Jesus sets up the story. But there's some very key points in this one sentence. And what are they? First, they steal his clothes. That's important because you can't make an initial value judgment about him. Is he rich? Is he poor? Is he a Jew? Is he a foreigner? You can't tell because the way that we first judge people by how they look, that's been taken away. All you can see is it's a person. And that's an important point because the story is told to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And here is all you can see, a person. And then he notes he was left half dead. So it's hard to tell. Is he alive? Is he dead? It's not really clear. So both of these are important parts of the story. So a priest happens to come down the same road. And when he sees the man, he passes by on the other side of the road as far as he can get from him. A Levite, which is sort of like an assistant priest, does the same thing, crosses on the other side of the road. What's important here? Well, most everybody thinks they know the answer to this, that priests and Levites would become unclean if they touch a dead body. They wouldn't be able to enter the temple, they wouldn't be able to perform their functions, they would become impure, and that's true. But there are also some mitigating circumstances that come into play. First, they're going down the same road, which means they too are going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, not the other way around. And that's important. We know that a lot of priests and Levites actually lived in Jericho, mostly because the weather was really nice. So presumably, they were going from their time of service in the temple in Jerusalem back home. And so by becoming impure, by touching a body, it wouldn't prevent them from serving in the temple like it would if they were going the other way. And if you only got to serve in the temple maybe once a year, that would be a pretty big deal. But they were coming home after serving. So touching the dead body would have been a matter of inconvenience more than anything else. Next, Jews were actually required on religious grounds to bury a neglected corpse. 
even the high priest, if he came across a dead body that had no one there to care for it, would be responsible for taking care of the body. And for most Jews, the vast majority of them, nothing, not even the purity laws, stood in the way of saving a life. Laws were suspended when life was in danger. And that's true to this day. All the laws are suspended when a life is at stake. In Judaism, preserving life is the highest commandment. So the victim is described as half dead. Whether the priest and the Levite thought he was dead or alive is unclear, but in either case, they had the obligation to help by either burying the corpse despite defilement or, as any decent person would do, to assist the man in need. They didn't help because it was inconvenient. They didn't help because they didn't feel like they needed to. And maybe they didn't help because they didn't think anyone was watching. And that's an important motivator for us. Stanford research in 2014 showed that hand washing after using the bathroom went up 23% when other people were around. Which is interesting because in a separate survey when asked if they washed their hands after they used the bathroom, 96% of the people said yes. But there's something about when somebody's watching that affects our behavior. And they were on a deserted road and nobody was looking. So now, at this point in the story, as a hearer, you have a bit of a dilemma. Because the priest and the Levite are the good guys. They're supposed to be the heroes. And they manifestly are not. But the story goes on. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. Jews don't like Samaritans. They think of them in coarse terms. They're half-breeds. They are of inferior breeding. They are of inferior intelligence. They are, have an inferior religion and religious understanding. It's really not very pretty. And yet it's the Samaritan, not the priest, not the Levite. It's the Samaritan who turns out to be the hero. And the Samaritan was met with the same conditions as the priest and the Levite. He couldn't tell whether the man was rich or poor. He couldn't tell whether he was like him or not. He couldn't tell if he was Jewish, whether he'd even appreciate a Samaritan helping him. He couldn't tell if he was alive or dead. And it really was inconvenient. And it ended up costing him time and money. But he did it. Why? Because of the type of person he was. Because he was a loving person. Because his posture was to help people in need. How do we know this? Because what we do is an outgrowth of who we are on the inside. This is actually one of the reasons why I love, love, love social media. I'm usually railing against it. But there's one reason why I love, love, love social media. Because in social media, you see what people say they believe, and then you see what they actually do because they post it on social media. 
And sometimes they're in harmony, and sometimes they're not. And I love seeing that. This guy's behavior was in harmony with who he said he was. So Jesus says, after the Samaritan comes along, which of these do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Or to specifically answer the man's question, which man acted like he belonged to the people of God? Which one loved? Which one cared? Which one was willing to be inconvenienced by somebody else's need? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. Franz Lienhard, whom I have never heard of before and neither have you, so it really doesn't matter, except that I want you to know that I attribute things that I don't come up with myself. And also so that you know that St. Augustine didn't say everything we're saying. Said, one cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, who was a neighbor to this person? He flips it on its head. The lawyer wants a closed set, wants to know who, who he needs to care about, who he doesn't have to, who is my neighbor? And Jesus instead asks, who was the neighbor to this person? On one level, Jesus is saying, there are no set boundaries to who is a neighbor. You can never say, well, I completed my obligation. Love doesn't have a boundary where we can say, ah, I've loved enough. It always comes back to being changed by Jesus, to having our lives transformed by, from being basically selfish to looking out for others and caring for them in Jesus' name. Who was the neighbor? Who actually behaved like they belonged to the people of God? What does a neighbor do? I mean, think about your neighbors. I think being a neighbor is more than just waving as you get into your car or, when, or as you come home. A, a neighbor, a neighbor is the person who brings in your trash cans for you when you go on vacation. A, a neighbor is the person who gives you an egg when you're baking a cake and you don't have enough eggs. Neighbors are people who care. Neighbors are people who help. And in many ways, being a neighbor is about posture. Will you be the type of person that people can borrow an egg from? Will you be the type of person that takes other people's trash cans in? Will you be a type of person who notices people's needs and then help out? Will that be your posture? Or will you constantly be saying, you are outside of my sphere of liking, like the woman at the gym. I don't like you, so therefore I don't need to care about you. Or you're not part of my group, you're not like me, Therefore, I don't need to care about you. Will you take the posture of a neighbor? That's what the Samaritan had. He had a posture of noticing, of caring about other people. Now, when we think about caring for other people, so many times we want to take things like this ad infinitum or ad absurdum, and we ask, how can I care for everyone if love doesn't know any boundaries? Well, you can't, and you're not expected to. You're expected to be a caring person who loves and cares for and shows mercy to people they come across who need it. That's all. And there's a heresy in here because some people think that with the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, 
that what that really means is that you first have to love yourself. That this is really the Bible saying, take care of yourself. That it's about self-love. But that's a corruption of the parable. Because what the parable is bringing up is that, and what um, Leviticus is talking about, is that the other person is of equal value and should be treated as you would want to be treated. It's not about you should love yourself, it's really more like the golden rule. And one commentator said, the text does not urge a self-love, but a selfless love. The circle of self-love is not simply expanded, it's shattered. You can't love everybody, you can't care for everybody, but you can care for the people that come across your path, and you can be a caring person. Who does the Samaritan address? He addresses the person right in front of him. You don't have to save the world, and you can't save the world. The thing or the person right in front of you might be a child sponsored through compassion. It might be helping with um, people in Alaska, or it might be helping the person who lives across the street from you. It's ultimately a question of who you are. And it's actually more ultimately a question of whose you are. So let me ask you three questions. Who is outside of the category of people you feel like you need to care about? Number two, what neighborly attributes do you have? And number three, who's right in front of you that you can help? Mm -hmm.